0: Hey, what's going on, guys? Our guest today is the founder and owner of Humboldt Distillery. He's a great guy. He makes some incredible spirits. I sincerely cannot recommend them enough. If you guys haven't tried them, go out, snag a bottle. Let me know what you think. Please give it up for Abe Stevens. Hey, thanks for doing this, man. I'm really excited to sit down and talk with you. Yeah, of course. appreciate
1: you uh, having me
0: on. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. My pleasure. So, how did Humboldt Distillery start, man? Because I am a huge fan of your company.
1: Yep. Uh, well, you know, it's hard to point to a certain spot in time and say, oh, this is where it started. Um, but the how is is—it's just one of those things that, you know, years ago I used to see all these craft breweries popping up you know in college and later you know I was into craft beer and you know still enjoy it um but you know I enjoyed cocktails as well and you know I would often wonder you say well what's the deal why are all these craft breweries popping up everywhere and so craft beer being so popular but all I can get at the store for my cocktails is Jim Beam or Bacardi and you know a handful of mainstream brands and that's it and uh just one of those, you know, observations or something, you know, I never really lost any sleep over it. And, uh, but then over time, um, started actually seeing craft distilleries start opening up, you know, and my wife's family is from Iowa and we lived out there for, for a few years and there's a, a local brand out there that make some whiskey. And I kind of saw what they did from kind of startup to, you know having people line up outside the liquor store you know trying to get one of the rare bottles and you know just saw the commercial success they had and made, re- made me realize hey that's pretty cool and also looks like these guys are making money too um, made me realize that you know hey maybe there's a there's an opportunity here and um so yeah at that time we were living in Iowa you know and you know, we had moved around quite a bit, you know, before that, you know, I'm from Humboldt originally.
0: Yeah. You went to school in Chicago and then you guys right. bounced to like New York and San Francisco, yep. right? Yep.
1: That's right. So yeah, we really moved around a lot. You know, I studied chemistry in college and, you know, so I worked as a pharmaceutical chemist for a number of years. And then, oh, wow.
0: Prior to the distillery. Yep. Oh, okay. um,
1: but then I got to a point where it, uh, yeah, I don't know, as far as like, you know, climbing that corporate ladder and the kind of the the industrial science side of things. If you didn't have a PhD, you'd always be working in someone else's lab or, hmm. you know, kind of the, the, there was kind of a limit to what you could do in the corporate world. And I wasn't quite ready to commit myself to the, uh, you know, PhD. And, um, and actually at around the same time, I discovered uh, poker as a hobby and, you know, got pretty good at it and realized, hey, you know, I'm actually making more money playing poker than I am as a chemist. Oh no, and, shit! Yep. So, I, so then I took a couple years uh, playing poker professionally. Oh um, wow! Yep. So I traveled around the country, kind of followed the, uh, the the big tournament circuit, and um, I played in a handful of the bigger tournaments. Never had one of those big paydays that you see on TV, though. Came real close a few times. Um, a few, uh, you know. You know, if I could go back in time and just change one, one or two hands, you know, right? You know, it could have been me, you know, with a big pile of money in front of me, kicking but, back on some beach somewhere. Uh, yeah, but uh, but I don't. In any in any case, um, but I did I did well enough in the tournaments, and then also on the side games, which were especially good. That kind of followed the tournaments, and um, in any case, uh, and I, you know, I you know I've been so busy with the business, I haven't had much time to play. But I like to play every once in a while when I get a chance. Um, so. In any case, yeah. You know, so I basically went from chemistry to uh, poker, to poker then also, um, you know, dab a little bit of real estate back in the, the, the kind of the, the great recession, you know, when the, the, you know, kind of 2008 to 2012, when, you know, there were tons of foreclosures, you know, I got into kind of house flipping, you know, kind of buy little investment properties and fix them up and resell them for a profit. And, um, and that was pretty lucrative for a while there. And it allowed me to kind of get you know and and my wife too she's been a big part of this as well um allowed us to kind of have the cash reserves available that you know we could allowed us to start a distillery um but getting back to your original question um you know we wanted to move back to move back to Humboldt and I'd kind of been observing you know what was happening in the kind of craft distilling industry and uh, you know there aren't you know really a lot of jobs here in Humboldt you know it's you know timber industry is declining you know cannabis industry is really you know has been booming but you know i didn't really have any experience or a lot of motivation for that industry um and but uh you realize well you know there's quite a you know there's like half a dozen breweries and a bunch of wineries in humboldt no distilleries you know no one's you know about a third of you know beverage alcohol drinking is in cocktails and no one's meeting that demand so i just started looking into it more say well you know seems like it's a growing industry. It looks like it's a fun industry. You know, a lot of times it's sending, you know, you know, cocktails are centered around celebrations and fun occasions. And, um, and so I just started doing homework and just the more homework I did, the more it seemed like a, a good idea, you know, or kind of at least a, a feasible idea and went to some like industry trade shows and conventions and, started touring distilleries. I don't know, I just kind of kept getting more and more serious on my homework. And there was never really a point where, or it's hard to identify a point where it turned into, or, or turned from just, you know, kicking the tires on an idea until saying, okay, yes, we're going to do it. But at some point, we decided, yes, we're going to move back to Humboldt and and that's what we're going to do. So we did move back to Humboldt, started Humboldt Distillery. Um, that was several years ago now um it took quite a few months of just paperwork and getting our facility up to you know kind of up to the task of actually making spirits and bottling them and everything um but then we sold our first bottle of uh vodka in 2013 wow so it will be eight years now in i think april wow that's
0: got to feel crazy
1: yeah it will Time flies, they say, and yeah, It's, it's right. true. It doesn't seem like it's been that long, but it has. And um, and so anyway, and we feel really fortunate with you know, um, you know the, the kind of the modest successes we've had. You know, originally, you know, as I mentioned, I kind of you know had my eye on what the kind of craft uh, brewing business was doing and all these craft uh, breweries, and it seemed to be that uh, kind of their business model was. You make a whole bunch of different kinds of beers. You know, you make a ale, you make a lager, you make a porter, you make a wheat beer, you make a tangerine something something, and uh, and uh, I was gonna take a similar approach with Humboldt Distillery. You know, we were gonna make a vodka, a whiskey, a rum, a gin, a absinthe, a, you know, brandy. You can get your hands you know, on. Yeah, which you know. If I had more time, it's, I mean, it, the, the actual production process is pretty fun. And, uh, you know, I, I would, and I still hope to make some more of those, you know, fun stuff. But, um, and we have, over the years, we have come out, we, you know, now we've got a number of products. Um, and uh, um, we're kind of doing that. But for the most part, most of our business revolves around our, our vodka. And um, so our organic vodka was our first product. And it was, uh, we just released it locally. And, you know, I mean, just, I think just the amount of support we had just from local people was more than we expected. And we have been kind of playing catch up ever since, just kind of keeping up making the, making the organic vodka, which, uh, yeah you know, which is, you know, fine with me. It, uh, you know, it definitely helps us pay the bills and it's, uh, you know, vodka is a really versatile spirit and you can.
0: Incredibly popular. Yeah. It's, Everybody likes vodka. Uh,
1: yep. It's, uh. Super easy to make cocktails. You know, basically anything you want to add a little bit of, uh, you know, juice it up with a little alcohol. It's you know, it's a neutral spirit, so it doesn't really conflict with a lot of stuff. You can just put it in whatever you want. Put it in your carrot juice or your coffee or wake up and are, rolling. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, but uh, in any case, uh, yeah, the organic vodka that you know remains our bestseller, um, and in fact, it's now the um, Depending on who you know, which industry stats you read, uh, you know, is uh, is either the or among the uh, best-selling California-made vodkas in the state.
0: Oh no shit. Yep. Oh, that's got to feel good.
1: Yep. So when you look at like a list of sales, you know, like industry data, you see all the big guys like Tito's and Smirnoff and you know Cuddle One. You know, they're all up on the list. But then you look down and you know you start to get down to like seven or eight. You know, and all of a sudden you see Humboldt Distillery. And, uh then you got to see hundreds of other brands down below that and you know that you know yeah you that's know, always nice to pat ourselves on the back and yeah say, right. well, you know you know oh wow look at that I didn't realize we were that popular and um and we I mean we're not like uh you know it's not like it's super wide selling you know the big guys the Titos and the weirdoffs and those guys they still sell you know a hundred times more than what we do yeah but they've but, been
0: around so much longer than you yep. guys.
1: But still, when you look at, you know, all like you know, all the kind of craft distillers in California, they're making vodka, you know, so far we seem to be at or near the top and uh, which is, you know, humbling and, you know, makes us feel good. Yeah. People uh, like your product. Yeah. Friend. So it also means that, uh, you know, it requires a lot more work. So, you know, my role has definitely, and of course, Humboldt, you know, there's only a hundred thousand or 120,000 people here, so there's kind of a limit on how much we can actually sell locally. So I've been spending a lot of my time, or at least prior to the coronavirus, a lot of my time on the road as kind of the traveling salesman. Trying to push the product a little bit. So we've been selling, I mean, so at this point we sell more in like San Francisco and the Bay Area than we do in Humboldt. And, you know, we've been trying to get into Southern California more. And it just takes a lot more. People people in San Diego aren't going to buy it just because it's Humboldt. I mean, there will be a few people, but, you know, it requires a little more... uh, effort to go down there and say, Hey, you know, why are you drinking this big mainstream brand built, you know, made in a factory when you could, you know, have this California made brand that's also certified organic and, you know, so on. And that's, you know, people are receptive to that, but, you know, just, you know, requires getting on the road
0: and, spreading the word yeah it's almost and, where it's like it's such a saturated market just alcohol in general you have to put the product in people's yep. hands and be like here just just try it sure and we'll see what happens after that oh yeah no it's yeah and it, it is it's it's a competitive industry i mean
1: not only have there been these big mainstream brands you know for years or decades or hundreds of years for that matter um you know now now with the kind of the craft spirits industry when we first started um I don't know. There were maybe like 20 something distilleries in California. Total. Yep. Oh, and wow. now I'd say there's got to be at least a couple, I mean, more than a couple, 100, a few hundred or more. And so it's been roughly 10 times more number of kind of craft spirits producers, you know, than when we first started uh, back in the day. And then, you know, even in, uh, you know nationally, you know, at the time there were probably I don't know, a few hundred. Now there are you know, literally thousands of distilleries. And uh, unfortunately, there's only so many spots on the shelf, you know, or behind the bar. And so everyone's trying to, try to, you know, to get one of those spots. And I think for us, I mean, fortunately, we kind of got in early enough. I and mean, even here in Humboldt, there are now, you know, like four or maybe even five distilleries now. Um, I mean, fortunately, we got it in kind of at a point where it was still easy to get a spot on the shelf Mm -hmm. and that has really been a a big part of our success i think if we had started later um you know we wouldn't have had the success we have had so far and we probably would have had to focus more as being just kind of a destination local distillery where we'd be more dependent on you know gift shop sales and tours and tastings and you know which is a which is itself a pretty you know, it's a viable business model. You know, a lot of distilleries out there, you know well, right now, because of the pandemic, that they, they are the ones that are hurting the most, like because it's tough to be a kind of a destination distillery when
0: the tap rooms closed. You yeah, can't really go exactly and sit down and yep.
1: taste flavors. And uh, and you know, when you look at the state guidelines as far as which businesses are allowed to be open and which ones are supposed to be closed at all the different tiers. You know, breweries and distilleries are kind of near the bottom of the list. You know, you know, same with bars. You know, at least you know, bars that don't serve food is uh, it's been tough. And you know, and those, you know, and the you know, obviously bars and restaurants are a important. You know, important part of our business. You know, they're a good chunk of our customers are bars and restaurants that buy our stuff. And um, so it's definitely been tough to see what they've gone through. And, um, I'm hoping that that they're going to pull through. I mean, I'll, you know, we'll see. It's just, uh, a lot of them, especially the independently, you know, kind of mom and pop places. Those are the ones that I think are having the toughest times, the big national chains, you know, they got big pockets and yeah, they can bleed know. cash for a little bit. Yeah, and, still and so fine. my, my, you know, what I fear is, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're going to end up with just a lot more chain mm-hmm. restaurants and fewer kind of independent kind of,
0: uh spots but we'll see has that put a pretty big hamper on your guys's market with the bars being closed or like sales from stores kinda um, recouping for
1: that? us uh our our own humboldt distillery um it's it's pretty much evened out um the what we lost in bars and restaurants we made up for and grocery stores and you know other retailers and uh, so last year um we finished uh we actually finished A little bit you know ahead of what we did in 2019 so we're actually able to show just a real real minor amount of growth oh that's good Um, so yeah so we feel really fortunate Um, but I know a lot of other people in you know kind of in the same industry you know kind of craft spirits they were a lot more dependent on bars and restaurants and you know you know and if like I said you know gift shops and you know tasting rooms and stuff that you know they are having a hard time as well and so I, I suspect we'll probably see you know a number of uh, kind of craft spirit you know distillery
0: closures too but, damn well yep. yeah especially if you like you said you can't get your bottle on the shelf yet yeah your kind of only option is the bar or mm-hmm. your tap room yeah and both aren't really open right now so what are you gonna do Yep, it's been tough is the hardest part have you noticed like just trying to get the product out there well, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, and a lot of people, I mean, a lot of the advice
1: I had gotten, you know, even when I was first researching it, you know, was, um, you know, you're going to want to, you you know, individually, you're going to want to put your time into making the product and making the best stuff you can or experimenting and tinkering in the shop kind of stuff. But ultimately it's going to come down to a lot of sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that has kind of proven true, I think, um, uh, you know ideally i would spend my time in the distillery you know making you know fun spirits and you know yeah i've got all kinds of ideas and stuff i'd like to do or plan to do when i have time but uh, we do spend a lot of our time just in kind of just like i said being the traveling salesman and uh, getting out there and just introducing it people and you know talking to you know the people that make the decisions at uh, you know retail stores and Bars and restaurants, and just getting you know, just getting out, getting it out there. It, uh, um, it's just out of part of the nature of the business. Yeah, you know, it's pretty much, I guess, with any business, you know, there's always a big sales component. hmm Um, but I mean, fortunately for me, it's you know my own product, and yeah, that's kind of I enjoy selling it. You know, I you know I I have no problem talking to people about it, and you know, it's just you know takes you know the hours of time that it takes to get out there and do it.
0: How, so when you started, did you, were you just brewing batches like in your garage or something, or you just dove in?
1: Um,
0: because it seems much, like the bar of entry is a little higher, right? Yeah. Than with, like it's microbrews. actually, yeah. And, and
1: it's actually, I mean, with least with microbrews, you would legally are allowed to do home brewing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not legally allowed to distill at home. Oh really? Um, so, um, so if I was doing some experimental batches at home, it was, uh, you know, the, under the uh, the guise of making fuel alcohol, yeah, allegedly,
0: <laughs> but, if you were doing that, yeah,
1: i was just saying hypothetically if I was, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but it's still even then it it's hard to scale that, you know like a recipe or something from making something in a you know five gallon bucket to like doing you know fifty or five hundred gallons yeah. in a more production setting. So it, um, it there's definitely a learning curve you know involved in just the actual production process. But, um, I mean, fortunately, I think that's, that's one area where the, of the business where I felt most comfortable, um, you know, just kind of, you know, formally just as a chemist. And, you know, and then when I was working in the pharmaceutical industry, you know, kind of my job there kind of, you know, kind of evolved from the laboratory more into the, you know, the manufacturing side of it, where we would look at like how to scale up the processes, like how to make the products in like bigger batches and more efficiently and so anyway all that uh all those pumps and hoses and stills and all the production side of it you know was what i you were comfortable I, with? It. i was most comfortable with it you know the sales and marketing is what i've really had to learn along the way
0: mm-hmm. what i mean i'm just trying to picture like how when you're so when you first started with your vodka were you creating like different batches of flavors just on oh this might mix well with this or oh let's add a little yep. bit more of this how did that how oh, yeah. did that happen? Was so, that more your chemistry background of just, okay, these two are going to go well, well together? No,
1: I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, having a technical background only gets you so far. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could, you know, it's, you could, it's easy enough to say, okay, if I start with this amount of raw materials, I can go through the process. In the end, I will yield this many bottles of product, you know, doing the math and that kind of stuff is pretty straightforward. But actually saying, oh, but it's going to taste like this or... This one's gonna burn in the back of your throat more than this yeah, one. I want that's, people to actually like it. Yeah, that that's something you just have to do it and try it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I you know, so I did do quite a bit of experimenting. And uh, so with the vodka, you know, being our first product, you know, that's where I've put a lot of my initial effort. And that that's the one spirit that it doesn't matter what it's made from. You know, everything else, you know, beer is made from grain, brandy is made from fruit, rum is made from sugarcane. Um, tequila is made from, you know, agave and, uh, you know, and so on. But, um, but vodka, that's, you know, what what determines that it's vodka isn't what it's made from. It's uh, how high the proof is, like, you know, how much you distill it. Oh, really? So to be vodka, it has to be distilled to a minimum of 190 proof. And uh, proof is just double the percentage of alcohol. Um, so that's, so 190 proof is 95% alcohol. So you have to distill it to such a high level of purity that basically what happens is, you know, the more you distill it, the more pure it gets. Um, and you, 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 you remove your, you're kind of separating the impurities, but the impurities are what give the, you know, the other spirits, their character. So the impurities in say a grain distillate would give it, you know, a corn flavor or a rye flavor or or in rum, you know, kind of a, a kind of a molasses or sugarcane kind of character that gives it the 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 flavor and aroma of the spirit. Um but with vodka, you're trying to remove that and end up with a neutral, you know, a neutral spirit. So there was a, you know more more raw materials to try. And so and you know I guess I mean and it, traditionally vodka, you know, in say Russia or Poland was made from potatoes, and there are definitely some potato vodkas, you know, still out there but um, most of the mainstream, mainstream vodkas are made with grain, corn especially, mm-hmm. um, although there are some popular ones made with wheat. Um, but, you know, there's also some mainstream vodkas that are made from grapes, you know, and uh, um, anyway, but we settled on uh, sugarcane. And oh, wow. so our, our vodka are a sugarcane based, which, you know, was convenient because we were making rum too, or or I knew we would soon to be making rum. So then you'd so, have those materials already yeah. on hand. Yeah, and um, but I also like the 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 flavor. I mean, it was just kind of the the character of the the vodka when it was sugarcane based, and um, I think it just kind of has a a cleaner finish. <clears throat> and I think uh, I mean in comparison. So like when I'm when we are making whiskey or rum, you know. You know, say we're making a uh, a malt-based or, or a corn-based whiskey. When it comes off of the still, it comes off rather. I don't know. It's kind of harsh and funky. It doesn't really taste very good, and it requires it requires that aging process to kind of mellow it out, and also to kind of just over time. You know, just some of the compounds in that raw whiskey will convert to stuff that's you know mellower and, and more aromatic. And um, so basically just the unaged raw spirit that, you know, we got from grain just came out harsh and didn't taste very good. And and if we kept distilling it, we could turn it into vodka, you know, which, you know, it was what majority of the the mainstream vodkas are, you know, um, but with say the the rum, we're making it from sugarcane, it tastes good coming out of the still pretty much immediately. And, you know, it does improve with age, you know, we could put it in a barrel and it will, you know, add complexity and, you know um you know you know can improve the flavor but it still is just an unaged raw spirit it is tasted good right from the bat and then taking that and redistilling it further into vodka i think just some of that kind of the initial perception of the raw spirit kind of carries over to the vodka and so we start with the material that tastes good that begins with and still tastes good when you distill it even more yeah right um so in any case, I don't remember what your original question was. But yeah, it's it's a sugarcane vodka, um, which is, you know,
0: it's, we're not the only one. There are a handful of other vodkas out there made from sugarcane, but mm-hmm. it is a little unusual. Are you guys adding anything back into it after you distill it to like increase the flavor? Or no, that's all. Nope. It's just so straight not, from not the No,
1: so I mean, the, the
0: organic vodka, Um, you know, that's the
1: one with the crab on the label. Um, That's just pure vodka, nothing else. Uh, purified water and that's it. Um, I mean, and which, you know, sometimes we brag about and kind of some of our marketing materials say, Hey, you know, no additives, no glycerin, you know, artificial sweeteners mess anything. you up. Yeah. Cause there are, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the TTB that's the tax and trade bureau, um, that, you know, they're a federal, federal regulate, federal agency that regulates us. They do permit some additives in vodka. And so a lot of brands do add stuff to it, um, like glycerin and, you know, some other stuff that will provide a kind of uh, an artificial smoothness or well, yeah, sweetness. You can look at certain
0: but, types of alcohol and it's like purple and yeah. it's got like gold flakes in it. And you're like, this is not, uh, this is well, not good for you. What yeah. are we doing here?
1: Well, yeah, those are, those are definitely got some additives. Yeah. um So in any case, but that's a, just kind of a minor point of pride on our part that, you know, ours is uh, smooth enough and pure enough that we don't have to add any of those anything, you know, to give that, that extra kind of sweetness or, or mouth smoothness.
0: Yeah, is it? How long does it take to distill it down for vodka? Is this uh, like a
1: no. few months? Oh no, it's it's quick, and that's well, and that's actually one of the reasons why we start with vodka. It's because it doesn't require any aging, and it's you know relatively quick and easy to make. Um, oh, you don't have to let it sit at all. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's I mean, you know, it it's generally. I mean, the actual produ- the actual making of the vodka part is pretty quick. I mean, f- for us, the longest part is the is the bottling process because mm. um, we we bottle everything by hand. One okay,
0: th- so it's like a limitation on yep.
1: how quickly you guys can go. Yeah, one okay. of the, one of these days, we might get to the point where we upgrade to all those conveyor belts and robots and stuff to yeah. to bottle it really fast for us. But those things are really expensive. Mm, I'd right? imagine. Um. So, so yeah. So for us. A batch could probably take about a week, but, you know, most of that time is just the actual bottling process, filling it from a a bulk tank into bottles. Start to finish in a week. Yep. Wow. So, but uh, on the other hand, we've got, um, you know, we've got some rum that we have been aging for at least six years now, maybe seven years. Oh, wow. Still still not ready to be bottled. Oh,
0: Jesus. Yep. And that's before you can release it to the public Well, the we, age each one.
1: We don't, I mean, we don't have to. I mean, we could have released it, you know, immediately. I mean, we could have released it as an unaged silver rum, but um, um, no, the, the rum that I'm talking about, it's a, it's a molasses based rum and it, uh, it's just a really st- heavily bodied kind of flavorful rum and it just keeps getting better with age. Okay. And, um, and that's kind of the, the case with a lot of our age spirits um, they just, you know, they generally do get better with age. And so it, it makes it easy to procrastinate when you say, Oh, we, we got this big old vodka order. You know, we, you know, the, the rum is tasting pretty good. We could bottle it pretty soon, but yeah, that's, we'll just wait another six months and it'll get even better. And, and so it's easy to keep kicking it down the road. But, um, but with that molasses based rum, it, it definitely has it really improved, uh, with that age. And I don't, and you'll see a lot of, you know, a lot of like really premium rums, you know, they're like 10 12 years old, and I can see, you know, why they took that long. And, um, so in any case, yeah, so some products do they just take years, and we do make, you know, so it, yeah, it's, and it's not all vodka. I mean, we do have, and I brought you a sample of our hemp infused vodka, which I'll, I'll tell you the story of that shortly, yeah, but, um, but we do also make we make a little bit of whiskey uh we've got uh you know last year and this year we've done a you know a handful of cases of uh malt based whiskey okay and that's um we're not set up for grain handling at the distillery so we do our kind of our malt uh like all the grain milling and mashing and stuff at ill river brewery and then we bring it back uh to the distillery to ferment and then distill. so that's, you know, it's harder, a lot harder to find, but there are a handful of places that have our, our malt whiskey. And then we, uh, there's even, we have yet to actually sell it anywhere. We've got a uh, wheat whiskey. It's pretty tasty. And um, we do have a, a, a kind of a sour mash, you know, corn bourbon kind of recipe whiskey that is still aging that we'll probably bottle maybe in the next year. And uh, some other fun stuff, just, you know, like that molasses rum I mentioned, and, uh, oh, actually, probably our uh, – the next product we'll be coming out with here, I think, later this year is – I was going to say the
0: fall, right? You got yep. something
1: cooking? Yep. And uh, and that's our uh, organic apple brandy. Oh, wow. Yep. So that has been uh, also aging for a few years, and now it's getting to the point where it's pretty tasty. And um, it's one of those spirits we could have bottled it a, you know, a year ago. It, it tasted pretty good at two years. In fact, the apple brandy tastes – it's one of those spirits it tastes good coming out of the still just as a raw unaged spirit in fact we did sell a little bit of the kind of the the clear unaged apple brandy um which you know the french call it an eau de vie and um which is it's pretty tasty but you know the the aged you know it kind of gets the complexity from the, all the oak kind of can't tannins and sugars and and with time just you know a lot of those compounds kind of react with each other and create interesting components but so in any case uh yeah, that apple brandy will be coming out in the next, yeah, months, oh, know, the fall it. probably.
0: When you let them age, are you letting them age in, like, a barrel or... Because that's how a lot of people get flavor from whiskey, right? Is they yep. let it age in, like, yeah, a, so, a wood barrel and yeah, it exactly. the flavor yep. out. So,
1: traditionally, I mean, most whiskey, or a lot of whiskey is generally aged in American white oak barrels. And, um, yeah, so, you know, it starts out as, you know when it comes out of the still, it comes out perfectly clear. So all the brown color you see is comes from the Oak itself. comes from the wood. Oh, I did not know that. Yep. Um, or it could come from, uh, from caramel, you know, caramel, or sugar, or caramel coloring it to kind of, you know, increase the Brown color. But, um, but yeah, so it caught, co- you know, so a lot of the flavor and color comes from the wood. So the unaged spirit is quite a bit different than what people are used to drinking out of the bottle. And, uh, and it, it, you know, it is possible you could age the, you could age your, your, your whiskey in, you know, or your rum or your brandy for that matter. in uh, in glass. And we do have some, we have some like, you know, several like really big, like 15 gallon, you know, glass carboys that we do some, some aging that doesn't, you know, not on wood. But, um, but I, but actually in, at least in the U S I don't think it, you could illegally make whiskey that didn't see some time in a barrel. Oh, why is that? Uh, just kind of federal regulations. You know, they define each category of spirit, and so whiskey has to be made with grain and has to be aged in a barrel. And, huh. And so, so if it's say bourbon, for instance, has to be at least fifty percent corn and has to be aged in a new charred barrel. So it can't it has to go in a barrel that was freshly made and charred on the inside. Is that and, just so they
0: can regulate it, or they don't want people experimenting
1: um, outside of the no? Noise? You can experiment. You just have to call it. You just can't call it bourbon. Mm. They just want the consumer to, to know what they're getting. If, okay. if it says bourbon, it has to be corn based. Has to be aged in a new barrel. And um, if it's straight, if it's straight bourbon, it has to be aged a minimum of two years. And uh, so that's basically just more consumer protection. Okay. And, you know, if you wanted to make something with uh, some weird. Uh, You know, uh, you want to make it from oats or something and you wanted to, you you could call it oat whiskey, you know, or if you wanted to add a bunch of like raspberries to it, you know, it would, you would, you just have to appropriate label. It'd have to be like raspberry flavored whiskey or just so people know what they're getting into when
0: they buy it. Yeah. Okay.
1: And, um, so in any case, yeah. So almost, almost always the, the aging process happens in, in oak barrels. And we, for the most part, most of the barrels we use are once used barrels. Um, so for instance, our, pretty much all of our rum and our apple brandy and most of our whiskey is aged in used bourbon barrels. So barrels that have been aged, have aged bourbon in them and then have dumped out then the original distilleries, resold
0: them as used barrels. Is that just to get that flavor profile from it?
1: Um, well, so when, so yeah, the, when you, when you age a spirit in a new barrel, you get a much more intense flavor and color. And which can be good, especially when your whiskey is kind of is pretty funky to begin with, you know, like you know, when it comes out of the still like I said, it's just doesn't really taste that good. It's a so little harsh. Add, adding a bunch of uh wood sugars and uh and vanillins um and when you do the when they toast or char the barrels, it creates a lot of vanilla compounds. You know, so that really imp- vanilla like the plant vanilla. Yep. Uh-huh. Oh wow. Yep. So uh I mean the main the the main compound in vanilla is a just a chemical called vanillin and um in uh in in wood uh, there are tannins which are somewhat kind of chemically similar to, to to vanilla but if you apply heat to it they'll kind of degrade and turn into vanillins including other some you know a lot of other chemical components so huh in any case with uh with some of some spirits you want that new barrel but with other spirits um especially like uh rum it's you know it's you know long history of rum going into used barrels and even uh even say like scotch whiskey in Scotland they you know they don't do much new barrel aging most of their aging is in like second use or even third use barrels and uh, especially within Scotland, they age their stuff for you know decades, sometimes. Like twenty five years. Yeah, for and you kind of yeah. If if you're using a new barrel, you just get way too much oak in there. It would taste really kind of bitter and too too woody. Um, and so when you use a barrel that's already aged something else, you know it, it's not as intense. Okay. But it still provides you some of that wood character and uh, still and one of the benefits of aging in wood is it's kind of permeable permeable to air. So it'll it'll keep the liquid in, but over the course of months or years, there's still exchange with the you know the the outside air, and so that air just kind of you know oxidizes some of the components. It just kind of lets it chemically react into more mellower, you know, tasty, you know, components.
0: So on top of having the requirements just to distill it, you also have a place to store this, right? I mean, how many batches are you guys doing at a time?
1: Oh, um, well, so. Since the majority of our production is focused on vodka, um, we don't necessarily need that much storage room, but we do have... Excuse me. Um, That's a good question. Um, We might have around 100
0: oak barrels currently. At any given time. Yep. Oh, wow. So, I don't know, and they take up some room. How many bottles can you get from a barrel?
1: Well... It depends. Uh, over time, you lose a lot of a lot of the product in the barrel to evaporation, or if the barrels weren't like perfectly made, or they could leak. You know, and sometimes even like a slow leak, you may not even realize it's leaking because it may, may like drip or just seep out the side, but evaporate before but you But over even know years, it. but yeah, over the course of months or open years, open it. And it's empty. Oh yeah. man. Well, fortunately, we've never found one totally empty, but we have found some that. We would open up, say, three or four barrels of the same age, say maybe like three or four years old. And, you know, three of them might be like mostly full, you will say 90% full. But then one might just be like, oh, this is only 50% full. What happened to that? Oh, wow. And then maybe we'll see it look on the side of the barrel or we'll see a bunch of like, you know, kind of, you know, crust, you know, near, near one of like the cracks in the barrel where it just over time just got kind of seeped out but never dripped on the floor for us to notice, mm-hmm. but it just kind of, just, it was so slow that it's kind of seeped and evaporated. Under the radar. Yeah. Um, so in any case, but a, a you know, full-size barrel holds 53 gallons. And when you count for loss, um, you could say that's just roughly 53 gallons of spirit that you'll put in a bottle. And, uh, oh, let's see. There's roughly two gallons in a case, which is 12 bottles. Um, so you could probably get about a couple hundred bottles out of a barrel,
0: roughly. Wow. That so, is so crazy. Yep, That's gotta be, I mean, when you think about how long people have been making alcohol and to carry on that tradition, that's gotta be insanely cool. Yep. I mean, everybody talks about it's either owning a bar or creating a distillery, doing microbrews, and then just to start it man that's that's insane yeah that's really cool yeah no it's been a
1: really fun process you know and i we, and i feel really fortunate you know that you know it's been you know it's done as well as it has i mean i'm not driving to like a big lamborghini or anything not But we but we but we did we we were able to kind of you know make a modest profit after you know our like our second year so we kind of that we, we passed that risk of failure which you know for starting a small business is always a risk oh yeah, yeah you got to get over that hurdle of just starting. Yep. So, um, it's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's definitely been, um, I mean, I feel fortunate that we were able to kind of build a business that allows us to pay our bills and, you know, is successful enough that it's sustainable. And now, you know, there's, you know, room to keep growing, you know, you know, California is a big state and, there's other yeah. states next to it. Yeah. Although we did we tried expanding some other states. We do there are some states that sell our you know spirits. Indiana has actually been one state where they've been a reliable they don't do a lot, but you know, our distributor there, they reorder on a pretty regular basis. Well, how um, cool is that? Yeah. But we found that um it's just was too hard. I mean, if we weren't able to travel to these places to introduce it and tell people about it, that it's just it was hard, hard to get it to be sold, and so we pretty much, you know, most of the efforts we're making these days is all California, you know, and Southern California is almost like a totally separate state. Itself. Oh yeah, so that's kind of where where we put our time and attention, um, you know,
0: within within California. Yeah, it's almost like you have to build up the logistical chain of getting it out there, right, to start yeah. spreading. Because if you spread yourself too far, that's another reason why businesses fail. Is you're Products going way over here, nothing's local, and then it's not sustainable yep. driving it out there all the time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, there, there are a lot
1: of facets to the business, and actually just getting out there is one of them. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, fortunately for us, we have a distributor that, you know, they basically we sell to them, you know, and then they, in turn, they resell it to all the bars and restaurants and retail stores and grocery chains and everything. Because, um, you know that would be a pretty logistical nightmare for us. You know if we had to kind of ship it to all these different places and then send them invoices and hope that they get paid. And, yeah. Um. So they are kind of, and actually we don't have a choice anyway. In California, and in most states, um, it's uh we have what's called the three tier system where we're required to sell to a distributor, to a licensed wholesaler
0: that then in turn sells to a retailer. So we, that seems so crazy that they have. I mean, they have that in the in the car industry too. You can't sell direct from yep. so the So I, I
1: mean, nowadays it's just powerful interests. I mean, the the wholesalers have got, you know, you know, especially the big ones, you know, that's billions of dollars at stake. And they've got billion dollar lobbyists. That's know? the problem, right? <laughs> and uh um it's you know, I mean, it's kind of it's the system that we have and yeah, you know, and, and actually, in some ways, for small distilleries, you know, and it's the same with like breweries and stuff too. They have the same issue. Um, it it's you know could be there. There are definitely aspects of it that work to our advantage um, because if we're not Jim Beam or, or Budweiser or something, you know, they I'm sure they would prefer to be able to sell direct and distribute themselves because they could afford all these salespeople and shipping delivery trucks and everything but it just wouldn't be practical for some small distillery in humboldt to try and ship to some grocery store in san francisco on a regular basis you yeah know? that's a good point point. and man. so it does provide a mechanism for the little guys to get their products out there to get it delivered and just like you know just even that getting paid part you know our distributor takes the risk of you know a bar restaurant going out of business and not getting paid for the shipment last week or whatever. And, um, although it's, but at least in California, there are only two, or I guess there, there are a few statewide distributors, but you know, it's tough. They, you know, they don't necessarily want to represent every single brand either. I mean, so fortunately for us, we got in kind of at the earlier, you know, at an earlier point when we were able to get a a statewide distributor, and but someone starting now, it, it'd be kind of tough just to get a distributor to sell your products, and so you're kind of in an awkward position where you don't have a legal way to sell it to your to a bar, restaurant, or retail store unless you can get a distributor to agree to sell it for you. And that, is that just
0: because there's so much product?
1: Uh, yeah, oh. yeah. There's just a lot of brands. So
0: yeah, it's good and bad, right? Yep. But it's weird when when you start making money, man. Everybody wants to try to put their yep. fingers in that and pull sure. something. Well, off. yeah. So I mean,
1: what's happened is, yeah. Now they are just a, a, a middleman that is required by law. Yeah. And um, which you know, I'm not. You know, as I mentioned, I don't want to. You know, I don't want to go buy some delivery vans and start.
0: Yeah, you don't have yourself. the time for yeah.
1: that. Um. So, in any case, I yeah, I don't. I, I'm fine with it and it's just one of those things that we just live with
0: and it's just the way it is. How come they won't let you brew at home? Is it like a fear? Cause if you brew, it's like with moonshine, right? If you tweak the brew wrong, you can make somebody go blind. Is that true? Is that a real thing?
1: Um, yeah, not really. Uh, I mean, it's urban legends. Well, I think, I think most of those legends probably originated from people. I mean, yeah, probably people selling alcohol illegally, but just going to the hardware store
0: and oh, in, mixing it with all sorts yeah, of buy, crap. Yeah, and buying
1: and buying like you know, a- alcohol from the hardware store and putting it in your you know, and usually, the alcohol at the hardware store you know is either denatured is, is ethanol the kind of drink alcohol you would drink, but they they add stuff to it that you know makes it poisonous you know or methanol which is another is it's called wood alcohol which is you know, you know, people you know they could get mistaken they actually they accidentally get the the methanol. Um, and um so i suspect that historically if anyone was going blind it was probably because people were just buying stuff from the hardware store and making whatever concoction that they were trying to sell as yeah mad chemists you know. over in their house but the- theoretically um there is you know so methanol that's that this different type of alcohol is what could make you blind um it is possible that you could make enough through distillation that someone could go blind, but generally it would be and so when you when you're distilling products uh you're um you kind of capture so there's like three parts of the distillation process there's the heads, so when you first start you know in distilling, you basically take a fermented liquid, so it's like a beer or a wine you'd add some like some fruit or some grain or some sugar cane you add some yeast and water and the yeast eats the sugar and turns it into alcohol so you have a kind of a an alcoholic liquid but it's only beer strength or wine strength you put it in a pot and you bring it up to a boil and all the alcohol fumes boil off and then you capture those alcohol fumes and you know cool it down and turn it into high proof alcohol so basically you're boiling off the alcohol and catching the fumes and so at the beginning of the distillation a lot of the impurities come out um, a lot of paint thinner type compounds and methanol, um, and you collect that. And it's a sort of real small, you know. We collect it at, at our distillery. You know, we're making hundreds of gallons, and we just get a couple canning jars worth of like the the heads, like those impurities that we we capture them and then discard them. And then you have the the bulkier distillation is what's called the hearts. That's a good part that you want to keep. And then the tail end, you get some bittery kind of funky oily compounds called the tails and uh, usually collect those and 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 uh, treat those separately and those don't go into the finished product um so but those heads that you collect like the you know like for us we might we might be making you know a few hundred gallons the uh, the very first like one or two like canning jars we collect could maybe the methanol content of that particular jar might be enough to Poison you, or make you blind, or whatever. Um, So, you know, it could be possible someone was making those heads and tails cuts, and they, you know, they had a a separate heads jar um, that, uh, you know, they gave away, or someone drank it uh, by accident, and and they were drinking that concentrated impurities jar. Um, So that it could be that. But generally speaking, if someone was just distilling a whole bunch, and it was all in one big batch, I don't think the concentration would be enough to make them blind okay um but of course i not that i'd want to condone anyone to make it at home don't recommend trying trust that they're not going to go blind themselves but But, so is it a
0: safety thing that's why they don't want you doing i don't
1: i actually don't know why i mean it is flammable so there it is more dangerous than brewing beer um because you know you need heat to to bring your your pot to a boil a lot of times People might want to use a gas flame, you know, mm-hmm. or even an electric burner is still usually hot enough to catch them on fire, you know. So you got have a, you have a heat source on one end, and then you have a high flammable thing coming out on the other end, you know. And they don't necessarily go together, you know. If that stream crosses, you know, the flame on the high-proof liquid blowing up your house. Um, but I don't. But there, I mean, there are all kinds of things that are really dangerous you can do. Oh yeah. So I don't. I've never really heard or believe that it was ever because everything was dangerous. I think it's, I think it's almost just more tradition Mm. Um, just going back to prohibition era or even before um, distilled spirits kind of had the reputation of being a hard alcohol, like a more evil alcohol um, that, you know, was more damaging, you know, to, or to society or I don't know. Um, It's actually, I mean, it's taxed that way too. It's taxed, you know, you could have a, a glass of wine or a beer or a cocktail with all the, you know, they have the exact same amount of alcohol in them. Um, but, you know, the cocktail, that the, the distilled spirits going to be much higher, you know, taxes. Um, which, you know, obviously from my perspective, it kind of works against my financial interests. Yeah, right. But, um you know, but even, even if I ignored my own financial interests, I don't think that there's a lot of logic behind that. I mean, people realize, yes, if you drink a glass of vodka the same size of a glass of beer, it's going to mess you up, but yeah. I mean,
0: that's not really the and way people drink. people kill whole bottles. People kill cases of wine. I mean... Yeah, so
1: people people generally self-regulate their alcohol consumption. If they're drinking spirits, even if they're doing straight shots, they're doing a shot of like a little one or ounce and a half thing. They're not doing a shot like a, a pint glass like yeah. they would with a beer. So, um, so, I, so the the logic, in my opinion, doesn't really make that much sense. It's just more of a... A traditional thing or kind of the perception oh this is a hard alcohol it's more dangerous it's more bad it's worse for you it's whatever and um so that has just kind of continued to play into the fact that it's illegal to make at home and that it's taxed at a much higher rate than beer and wine and you know and also just you could get it fewer places you can get beer and wine at any grocery all, store, anywhere, pretty yeah. much, you know. But you can only get hard alcohol at some places with special licenses, you yeah.
0: yeah, in Oregon, you have to go to, you know, a specific store yep. that sells hard alcohol. Yep. You can't just go, but you could go to Fred Meyer and get yep. Mike's Hard Lemonade, or get any of these ciders or yep. beer or wine. So, which you know, it's, it,
1: I think it's just more of a traditional thing. Um, I mean, places like Europe, it's you know there's really not a big distinction like that you know if they have beer
0: they're going to have whiskey too yeah yeah it's weird we have a weird perception of alcohol especially compared to like mexico Mm -hmm. or europe where it's like still it's so prevalent in our lives but it's still so taboo in a weird way where it's oh you can't drink until you're 21 meanwhile we know that you know kids and especially college kids are out here just getting plastered every weekend but it's like oh no we don't talk about that we it's 21 nobody can drink till they're 21 it's you you have to regulate it you have to be careful but there's this unseen underground layer of it that's not prevalent in other countries really i mean if you go back to europe they're not getting blacked out every single night of the week like we are over here you know and it's almost like it's that separation of Yep. Oh, this is something we still well, can't touch.
1: Yeah, I, do, I mean, so obviously I'm just a booze manufacturer myself, so you sh- shouldn't trust my opinion too much. Um, but I think, yeah, it, you know, it would be worth looking just kind of at, say, alcoholism or the problems that alcohol does have. You know, you can't, you can't, know, we can't ignore those and say, okay, well, let's look, you know, you look for comparison, you know, it does say the drinking age doesn't make a difference, you know, Compared to some other countries, say in Europe, you know, where it's not the same. I don't. I mean, there there are a lot of factors that go into the kind of the 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 social uh, ills that you know that it causes, or people think that it causes, um, and how they're trying to avoid those may not be they, they may they may not be taking the best approach. And you know, it may be worth looking at other examples to see what doesn't what works and what doesn't elsewhere.
0: Yeah. But well the craziest thing is you can enlist in the military at 18. Yeah. But you can't have a beer at 18. That yep. just seems that seems so crazy. It's like what you could you can go off and possibly die for the country but they're going to be like, "Oh, we're going to protect you from alcohol cuz that's yep. it's too dangerous for you right now."
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's you know, it's maybe it's one of those things that because it's prohibited, you know, if you can't drink it, you know, and you're you know and you're underage and you're at a party you know kind of oh this is my one chance I better I better hurry stock up stock up
0: yeah I better bring out the beer chug let's just yeah. go and uh,
1: whereas if it's you know didn't have that kind of taboo quality it's like oh well you know you know I've had wine at dinner you know for since I was whatever age and it's not a big deal and it's like you know it's I don't know. I, you know it, I guess I, I don't I wouldn't want to get too uh, political about like what should and shouldn't be done as far as public policy. Um, just because, you know, I've got a vested interest. Yeah. In you're it, just out here and, trying to make it. Um, but uh, I, I still, th- I mean, I think that it's not just alcohol, just, uh, you know, I think just a lot of stuff with all of our, our laws oh, yeah. are always in refinement and there's always room for improvement and, and they're just, yeah, a lot of the laws are just are based on tradition and vested interests, not on, you know, what's actually best for society. Yeah. Yeah. You know, including that's the biggest thing. Yeah. Including like we were, I was just talking about with the distilled spirits being perceived as the hard alcohol, you know, there, there is still that perception of that that's more evil, so to speak, or, or, yeah, more harmful than beer or wine, but there are also kind of financial interests and, you know, that I'm sure people, you know, that, you know, say, have a hard alcohol license to sell it at their bar restaurant or retail store. And they don't necessarily want everyone else to have it because they worked really hard to get their license or they paid a, paid a lot of money to get this special license. And if they open it up to everyone, you know, then they would potentially lose money. And, um, so they want to make sure that everyone that makes the laws understands that, Hey, I don't want this to change. I want it to stay the way it is. And that
0: gatekeeper aspect yeah, of it.
1: And, um, so i i'm sure and you know not just alcohol just a lot of things you know there are you know in addition just to the way tradition and uh kind of perceptions there are also kind of economic interests you know there's always so many with everything generally someone that wants it to stay the same or someone that wants it to change and um you know and they want it that way not because it, it may may be better for society
0: but because it benefits them personally yeah that's the biggest problem—is moving away from that. Yeah. I like. So tell me about this. You brought a little bottle oh, with yeah. you today. Oh yeah, so
1: yeah, this was so uh, you know. Fortunately, you can find our organic vodka, especially here in Humboldt. Pretty much anywhere that sells spirits, you can find the organic vodka. The Humboldt's Finest is harder to find, so I just brought you that one, um, so you could try it at your leisure. So that's our hemp-infused vodka. Um, as I was out selling the organic vodka, people say, "Oh, you're from Humboldt." You know, I know what Humboldt's, you know, famous for. And I say, what, redwood trees? And uh, then they're like, oh, no, no, you know what I mean. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And, and so basically everyone kept saying, oh, when are you going to put some of that quote unquote local flavor in your vodka? And say, you know, I, you know, I, I want a, you know, I want a cannabis flavored vodka, you know, and... It's not the you only know, like do have a chuckle and you know but I just heard that so much yeah you know, and they say the customer is always right so screw it yeah um so it's uh you know it's, so it's not legal there's no legal way to make a marijuana infused alcohol you know even in here in California with our you know all the new cannabis legalization there's strict st- state laws that separate alcohol from actual marijuana Mm. and uh and even if there even if there wasn't those restrictions i don't know i don't know that i would want to be the one to say it's a good idea to to, to mix two different drugs in the same yeah you almost
0: don't want to be the pioneer
1: of that yeah so that you know it's you know that's you know if people want to you know consume cannabis and alcohol at the same time it's probably best to let them mix them themselves yeah i i I don't know that i would want to condone it myself. so but anyway so after a lot of you know homework you know, I figured well, doesn't just because we don't want to make a product that will get people high, it doesn't mean we can't enjoy some tasty cocktails. And so, so I found uh, found that hemp. You know, is all, you know, it's it, you know, was also a strain of cannabis, um, but it's just you know, for hundreds of years, hemp. You know, marijuana's been grown for you know for its psychoactive components, but hemp has been grown for you know for fiber and you know. Oh, it's se- incredibly seed versatile. And oil and clothing, paper. Know. So. Um. So what we did, and if there isn't actually any hemp grown in Humboldt. I think I may have even seen recently that um, there may have been some local reg- you know regulations passed that prohibits growing hemp in Humboldt. Um, oh, really? I I. I don't know if it was accurate, but I saw it somewhere on, on online.
0: Um, that would be but, so crazy. You can grow weed, but well, not hemp.
1: And again, I think that probably comes down to those vested interests, financial interests. I mean, if people started growing big fields of hemp, it could you know cross pollinate and you know you know mess up their uh, their cannabis operations. So in any case, uh, we gotta go. We gotta look over the border into Josephine County, um, up in southern Oregon, and um, so we got a legal food grade hemp, and we infuse it with some vodka. And so, what we're trying to do is we're 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 capturing the aromatic terpenes that are common to to hemp that um, give it a fresh, leafy, herbal quality. So we kind of found out pretty early in our experimenting that you know, kind of what people expect marijuana to taste like, kind of skunky and funky, and those qualities doesn't really make for a tasty cocktail. So, so we kind of got away from trying to you know to kind of capture that that dried and cured kind of bud quality that people are usually familiar with, at least when they're smoking it. Um, But getting more to like the fresh leaf quality. So people that are around like, you know, fresh plants, growing plants and kind of um, kind of fresh leaf quality is, is a lot more herbal and kind of fresh. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's really hard to describe flavors and smells. It's usually one of the things that's easier, you know, one of those subjective qualities that's best to be like, tried yourself. But do you mind uh, if I open that? No, that's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. And um so in any case, we're we're capturing the fresh leafy quality. And a lot of people could say it reminds them of gin, um, which is not an inaccurate comparison. I mean, gin Because of the flavor profile? Yeah. I mean, or it's actually almost more in the aroma than the flavor. okay. And I mean, gin, I mean, when it comes down to it, is ultimately just an herb infused vodka. Um, but in gin, they're using juniper. And so we're just using a different herb. And uh, so when it comes to making cocktails with it, you can just kind of, you know... You can, Show it to the camera so people can see it? You, know, you can use it as a substitute for uh, for gin. It was a good starting place for, for cocktails. And it works, it works well with a lot of herbal ingredients like cucumber and basil and mint and lime. And um, so in any case... We did, uh, you know, we did some experiments, you know, trying to, you know, customers always right, so we thought we'd, uh, we'd give them what they're asking for, and uh, in the end, that was our Humboldt's finest, and it's, um, you know, it's just a kind of a herbal botanical spirit. Uh, we actually won a double gold medal at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. Which oh, is a, wow! It's a, a pretty prestigious uh, competition, and it's been, uh, you know, at least pr- prior to the coronavirus. A really big uh, fan with a lot of kind of craft mixologists and bit? bartenders.
0: I'm
1: just gonna pour a shot. Oh, you can pour me a tiny splash. Okay. I'll just, uh,
0: it's a podcast, why not, right? Know,
1: just do a little quality control. Make sure I, everything's. Make sure you got a, right? a, a good a, a good batch. But yeah, no, that one that's that's that smells good. Most of our most of our quality control is done just based on our with our sense of smell. Um,
0: I got to be honest, you're right. It definitely smells like a gin. It smells fantastic. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, yeah, like I said, it makes for some really tasty
1: cocktails. And a lot of the a lot of those mixologists that have really gotten behind it um, have really done so because of the flavor. I mean, they think it's a cool backstory that's made with hemp, but what really catches their attention is that it gives them a, a new tool for their toolbox to, for making cocktails that, you know, they didn't have... They didn't have in their repertoire originally
0: yeah and um that is crazy good yeah. man yeah well thank you wow how how long did it take you to come up with the the flavor profile for that like did you have to tweak a it oh bunch of different we recipes? did we did a
1: lot of different batches and mm-hmm. experiments um it uh i don't know it was probably maybe six months of experimenting off and okay. on um it was it, again that kind of goes back to i mean that was kind of my background kind of in formulation development yeah that's know, definitely gonna help right yeah you know, that's kind of it was fun for me i enjoyed that in fact i still enjoy coming up with like new spirit you know recipes so um in any case yeah so it was mostly just kind of coming up with the kind of the, the flavor profile that we wanted to that would make for tasty cocktails and in the end we we're really happy with with what we
0: what we you know came out with that is insane that is insane. Yep. Wow. And this when did you guys come out with this? Oh, that's been out I don't know, at
1: least a few years now. I mean, my sense of time is it's a bit off these days, so Yeah, everything's when I, kind when of I say together, I'd right? say oh, wait, that was last year, but in reality it's probably been oh, multiple God. years ago that's been out. Um, but it's uh but it's it's definitely taken longer to get it out there than our organic vodka. You know, part mm-hmm. of the challenge though is you know, it's, it's so unique people don't really know what uh, what to expect you know when they just see a bottle sit on the shelf they say oh that's kind of cool you know hemp vodka interesting you know and then you know I wonder what it tastes like you know I wonder am I gonna like it yeah. you know, or not you know, should I even buy it and so it, there's a lot of people are uh, you know people a lot of times don't like to try new things
0: yeah so we're creatures of habit right you know, is the problem so
1: it's so it takes more work on our part because it you know in order for it to be successful and the places where it is successful currently are places where we have spent the time to go out there and kind of educate the people on and say hey you know here, try a sample of this and then we kind of you know like the reaction from you, you say oh wow that's actually no you're not bad and um and so we get that so often that you know that's just part of our job now is to go out there and, and educate people say so, hey did you realize what well, we've got this? And and by the way, it's not just a cool backstory; it's actually
0: a really tasty mixer for your for your drinks. And it's a gorgeous bottle. I mean, the label on that is is. Are you guys designing all your own labels? Um, we have or a gra- we
1: have a graphic designer. We we kind okay. of it's a collaborative process, so we kind of go back and forth. He comes up with some ideas. So we say, "Oh, can you tweak it this way?" You know, do this and that. So, um, uh, it's uh we we share credit for the label we
0: can't take all the credit wow that is that is insane i notice you guys do i don't know how active it is but you guys have a really strong kind of social media presence on i see it on facebook all the time i'm scrolling nope. through and you guys take incredible pictures first off with your alcohol like in the background on the beach or somebody's carrying it through yep. the forest like that i would imagine that definitely helps kind of spread the word out no
1: yeah, well, as I said, a big part of the business is marketing. Just getting it out so, there, yeah. you know, if we wanna if we wanna sell to some 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 person down in L.A., we gotta have a slick looking story. Hey, check this out. Yeah. You know? um, but yeah, no. But it's but it's fun though. It's we actually it's it, you know it's an enjoyable process, kind of you know, you know, just kind of you know, trying to trying to recreate visually what we kind of stand for as a brand, and. Um, so in any case, yeah, I mean, we, I don't, we, we don't, we're not like a big influencer on social media, but we have a, we have a few followers. Yeah.
0: That's cool. That is really cool. I just, I mean, it's, you're making booze, man. How much better can it get? That's right. It. Is your favorite part then just kind of tweaking recipes, coming up with something? If
1: I had a choice on what I was going to spend my days doing, it would be, yeah, come up with all kinds of, you know, yeah interesting stuff. There's uh, Aquavit. It's like a Scandinavian uh, liquor. Um, I've been wanting to make some for a while. Okay. Um, it's like a more almost intense gin sort of thing, but
0: I haven't had the time to do it. It's with. just finding the time. I yeah. was
1: going to say it. Oh, man. So, and uh, and actually, and I personally like uh, brandy. Okay. So, you know, so we are doing the apple brandy, but I would really enjoy, and we have, we have done pear brandy in the past and one of these days, I'm gonna do some grappa, um, which is kind of a a great pumice brandy. Um, I don't think so, I've ever heard of grappa. Yep, it's uh, it's not that popular in the in the U.S., but it's popular in Europe, and it's basically they use the leftover uh, kind of grape pulp. You know, after they press it for wine, they get the the first pressing, and it's for the juice for the wine, and then kind of what's left over, they ferment all that and and distill it, and okay. um, so it's a it's brandy, but it's, it's a little it's got a little more harsh. I mean, it's got a little more burn to it. When you drink it, it kind of comes from all, all the, you know seeds and skins and some of the things that they distill, but you know, it, um, it provides it a unique, an interesting character. And in any case, I have yet to actually make any, Yeah. like every, all these,
0: all these things are cooking though, every, right?
1: Every year, you know, and I've got, you know, and I've got a, a you know, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I'm friendly with uh, someone that has a winery and, you know, every year kind of wine season comes and goes and it's a you know oh, it's only a, a short window of time where if we were going to do it you know we'd have to do it you know drop everything we're doing and go out and pick up the you know you know the that uh, that wine you know the pressings of the pumice and, and and just you know so far you know each year we've always something's going on at the shop we haven't had the time there's always it. something
0: you know? right that's the problem especially where something like that would be time consuming you know especially just coming up With the recipe that you like. Yep. Like, I understand how, oh, well, we got to market too. But I also want to diverge and, you know, start creating some fun stuff. I see where that would be like a tough, a tough pull for sure. Yep.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, we got to pay the bills first. Yeah, right. So So then you can keep making it. Got to keep the vodka train going.
0: And then, but
1: we have, I mean, so, I mean, we have now, so we've got the Humboldt's Finest you just tried. And we got a, a gold rum and a spiced rum. And we got the malt whiskey you know, those are all things you can find in stores. If you, you know, if you visit enough places, you can probably find them eventually. And then the apple brandy is coming out at some point. And then, um, then that, that dark rum I mentioned that's still like six or seven years in the barrel. Eventually that will get bottled. And, um, uh, and I'm, you know, it's possible we may do a traditional gin at some point in the future. But I mean, for the, mo- you know, for the moment, our Humboldt's finest kind of is our gin.
0: Mm-hmm. I can see why. I mean, it's got a great flavor profile. I got into gin for a minute. I was making these raspberry hibiscus mm-hmm. gin and tonics. Oh my God. It was, it was fantastic. I went to this, this restaurant down in Sacramento and they made me one and it was so good that I was like, I got to find this recipe. And after, you know, a few hours digging around online, I found a pretty good one. Yep. And so that was, that was my go-to for a while for gin. Yeah. What's your favorite cocktail?
1: Oh, that's like, asking someone who their favorite child is, but, (laughs)
0: um, but it's gotta be hard
1: for you, right? But, um, I'd say, I mean, a cocktail that I get a lot when I go out, um, is, uh, is a Mai Tai. So that's a rum cocktail. It's a kind of a tiki drink that was kind of invented down in like the forties or 50s, probably the forties. Um, but when tiki culture was really big and tiki bars, um, were were kind of the thing um it uh but the the recipe for mai tai there's no real standard i mean so it's, it has to be so it's, it's rum based and uh you you know or i guess it pretty much has to have an almond component um you know so usually like i think traditionally it's made with something called orjat, which is like kind of a a sweet almond kind of milk you, know, you can't make it at home it's just some sugar water and soak a bunch of like almond shavings in it and um, so it's you know it's got rum got some almond character then some sweetness and some sourness and um, so in any case what I found is uh, there's just so much variation in how different you know bars or bartenders will make a Mai Tai that's just been it's been interesting just to see the wide variety and and interpretations that people have for for that kind of classic drink and, um, and it's also tastes good. Yeah. Um I, definitely and I, helps, and I, right? and I like rum too. It's, you know, I, my, my personal preference is I, I I would prefer rum over whiskey myself. And um, <clears throat> so anyway, that, so that's kind of would probably be my, my usual, you know, kind of cocktail to try. Your especially cocktail. if I'm at somewhere new and they, it looks like they've got a pretty knowledgeable kind of bar staff. You know, I kind of I'll ask them to do a Mai Tai and just see what they're their interpretation of that is. Oh, man. Um, And I'm the same, the same with Caesar salads, too. I like, you know, I enjoy Caesar salads. I like to make them at home. Um, But, you know, different restaurants, you know, are, you know, go really heavy on the anchovies. Some places, you know, are lighter and some, you know, so I actually, that's just another thing I like to, if it seems like they're making like their own homemade Caesar dressing, then I generally like to try one of those and just kind of, the sense of
0: the full range of of Caesar salad flavors. Yeah, that's one of the cool things about bars, right? Is every bartender has kind of their own flair mm-hmm. when it comes to certain drinks. And just across the board, actually. I mean, you can go to two different bars and have two completely different drinks yep. that have the same name. Oh, yeah. You yep. know what I mean? Especially if you mess around with something dangerous like a long island Mm -hmm. you go to one place and it's like oh this wasn't bad and then you go to the next place and you don't even remember you were there oh yeah you can go sideways really quick with that i gotta ask because i've been mulling it around in my brain how did you get into poker how does one just like branch out and start playing at these tournaments
1: oh um i don't know i mean the the story behind that's not that or you know or or, to me it's not that interesting but um So, I mean, so a poker in California, I mean, I think poker has been legal since always, I think, since gold rush times. So in California, poker is considered a game of skill, not a game of chance. So roulette or blackjack, for instance, would be a game of chance. And, you know, and prior to all these Indian casinos, you know, just was not legal to play a game of chance in California. But, you know, for since, uh, you know, like I said, gold rush times, there have been poker clubs. Um, you know, or poker rooms. You know that throughout California, there, in fact, there was one in Old Town Eureka, the S and K card room. They shut down a number of years ago, but I used to play there, and they had been there for. Well, I bet there. I, I bet there are poker rooms in Old Town since the beginning of Eureka. Um, so, so there, so there are legal outlets to play poker. You know, in California, and including in the Bay Area. So when we were living. Down there, I, I worked at a, a pharmaceutical company in, uh, in Berkeley. And, um, and actually, well, in Emeryville, it's like the town next door, there's a, a card room there called the Oaks Club. And so I would just go there just for fun after work, just to kind of uh, unwind and play some like 50-cent poker game, just for, kind of for fun. And um, just found that it provided a mental stimulation that I was kind of missing at work you know, a lot of, a lot of what I was doing, you know, as far as the chemistry stuff, you know, there was some, you know, you know, some kind of new stuff kind of creative science type stuff, but a lot of just routine, like, okay, do the same test over and over again. And, um, you know, and so, and, you know, then I was, you know, fresh out of school. And so where I was just used to getting more mental stimulation, just kind of found that, oh, hey, poker really forces me to think about things or, you know, start thinking, okay, well, you know, there are 40 cards left in the deck where the odds that, you know, the next card is going to be a club and, um, and, uh, just kind of giving me that mental exercise that I kind of felt like I was missing. And, um, so I started doing homework, research about it, you know, looking online and getting books about poker strategy. And, um, then I, I, over time, I just, it was just, it was a hobby that just actually happened to be profitable. And, you know, I, it was kind of a gradual thing, you know, that I just kind of get, slowly slipped into Yeah, I kept getting more and more serious about my poker. And, um, I think, uh, you know, as I mentioned, when I was at the, that career that, you know, kind of the fork in the roads for my career, where it was time to decide if I wanted to go to get a PhD to kind of really continue that career path. Um, I kind of decided I wasn't ready to commit to that kind of, I, I probably put as much effort as I, I would have in a PhD into my kind of poker you know, kind of development and research and kind of homework, so um in any case, that you know that was itself kind of a, a gradual process that just started off as a hobby and made me realize that you know it was actually pretty lucrative and then, um, but the reality of it is still not as glamorous as it seems. you mm-hmm. know you know the traveling around the country is fun at first, but then you know staying in hotel rooms all the time is Could get old gets quick. old and then the actual poker playing itself is uh i guess, not it's not very good for you i mean so what do you mean by that well you're sitting you know so you know it's there's no physical activity you're just always sitting for like hours and hours at a time and then um it's you know it's stressful too you know you'll be periods of just kind of not doing anything, but then there'll be like really important kind of, you know, hands that come up that, you know, you're focused all your energy on and your adrenaline is really going, especially in like a tournament where you get down towards the end of the tournament. And, you know, each, uh, each decision could be, you know, thousands or even potentially millions of dollars based on a single decision. It's just uh, the stress hormones in your system are kind of always kind of spiking up and down. And um, it, uh, I don't, I mean, it's still, it's, it's quite the experience, but you know, doing that as you know you know, as a full time job, it uh you know it's pretty intense. Yeah, it it can wear you out a little bit. And also once it turns into a job Probably loses the fun. Yeah, huh? anything. Yeah, you know, whatever you can think of that you enjoy doing. If it turned into your job you do forty hours a week or more. You know, it's not you know, it's not gonna be quite as fun as it used to be. Yeah. What's the most you ever played for? <laughs> um well, I don't, I mean, quite a few, I mean, tournaments where the, like the, the million dollar prizes are. And so I, I've definitely played in a number of tournaments where there were million dollar prizes. Um, and there that was
0: so crazy. There was one
1: in particular that, uh, I got, uh, I got pretty close. Like I got like, you know, maybe a thousand people like the entered and I went out like 12th place. Oh, wow. First place was, you know, I don't, and I won, I don't know who knows several thousand dollars or maybe ten thousand or i don't i have won, you know like in some of those tournaments you know twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollars and like in a single kind of setting or a single tournament you know whereas you know not uncommon but um as far as those like big million dollar you know paydays i just you know never quite hit the right combination of cards to to hit to do it and you know it doesn't you know it even though it is a game of skill it there is a luck is a big factor, you know, the skill plays out over the course of days or years where, you know, when you play thousands and thousands of hands over, you know, over time you will average ahead. hmm But when you talk about one specific day or just, you know, one hand, you know, or just yeah, a few dozen hands that determine like a big outcome, there's, you know, you really just, there's a lot of luck there. And we take skill to get to that point, but you still have to get those lucky cards. And
0: yeah, it's like that culmination of events, right? Yeah. So, um, wow. in any case, yeah,
1: I don't. So I never, I never hit that big retirement payday where I didn't have to work again. But anyway, I don't know if uh, if I make it big in the distilling business and we don't have to work anymore, then I'll probably go back. Place poker sure, yeah. What pulled you out of it?
0: Was it the idea for the distillery? Uh, uh, um. No, I I think it was just,
1: I just, you know, I don't know. And I was fine with the stress. I mean, it's just like junk food, you know, you Mm -hmm. know, it's bad for you. You can't stop eating it. That's the problem. It's not, it's not, that doesn't mean it's hard to do, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, you know, it's not hard to sit there and, you know, and it's, you know, still, you know, I mean, that's why, you know, gambling itself can be addictive and uh, you know a a problem for a lot of people is because when you do win, it's a big reward for your, for your system. And so... You know, but I think, I mean, so the actual doing it part, I never really felt that burnt out, but I think just also just the knowledge that, Hey, this is not really, this isn't good for me. Um, and then, yeah. And then the fact that, you know, turning it into an actual job, you know, the fun part, you know, just over time, it's just kind of, okay, I gotta go put my hours in at the table and,
0: yeah. um, it's more of a chore now. Yeah.
1: So it,
0: uh, you know, it didn't, it wasn't as fun as it was, as it was when it was a hobby. Do you think that you would have gone down that route and eventually hit the distillery had it not been for that requirement of a PhD to advance further? You think you would have stayed in pharmaceuticals? Oh, uh, mm, I don't know. I think probably in an
1: alternate universe, um, I think probably the decision to go the PhD route was probably made when i even though i didn't realize it at the time when i decided not to go into a phd program immediately after college instead just wanted to make some money in the industry and um because you know i think the the longer you spend uh, outside of the academic environment probably the you know the oh yeah, less it's likely you're going to, hard to go get back into it i mean yeah. but it wasn't uncommon i mean it's especially in like business, you know, a lot of people well, it's kind of expected that you'll spend a few years you know in a business job before you go back to business school. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, you know, and working in the you know the a scientific industrial kind of company, it would you know, it's a perfectly c- common or legitimate thing to kind of get some experience first and figure out what you're enthusiastic about before you go back to pursue a, an advanced degree. But um I don't know, I think probably If I had stuck with it, I probably would have ended up more on the management side of like the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, it's a, it was a good industry. I mean, as far as like kind of corporate jobs go, you know, the hours were really good. Benefits were really good. Pay was okay. And there was definitely a lot of potential to make even more pay. Um, And then kind of where, you know, as my kind of job and that, that industry kind of changed over the years. I started doing more of the the process improvement to kind of figure out how to make the products more efficient and more cost effective and you know which in you know you know it was kind of a more production uh, based than a kind of research based and that could have easily led to more of a management kind of track probably where we have I would have supervised yeah kind of been more looking at just kind of say you know the operation of a plant kind of thing where, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe the budget to run the plant and, you know, just would kind of turn into a business for job. That's probably, that probably would have been a likely outcome for me in that alternate universe if, where I had stuck with that. Um, but uh, the one thing that, uh, that playing poker taught me was that I really enjoyed being my own boss and uh, that I didn't, you know, in hindsight, that there were a lot of conveniences in having that corporate job, but uh, that, you know, wasn't probably
0: for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, right? When you find something you're passionate about and it kind of opens your eyes it's like, oh man, I don't want to, I don't want to work this nine to five, making somebody else a bunch of money. I'd rather yep. start my own deal and just see what happens with it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. That's, that's, I think that gets a lot of people is, especially after school, they start in that corporate sphere, or you know, like with accounting and stuff, like you just get wrapped up into it, and then you blink and it's thirty years down the road, and you're like, "Oh man, did I? Yeah. Do I really like what I'm doing, or am I just doing this because the pay is good, or because of the benefits, because it's a stable job, yeah. and I'm I'm protected, and my family's protected?" It's weird when you think about man, just like one one little decision, and yeah. you're in a completely different place. Yeah, yeah, no,
1: that's true, and uh. Well, and, you know, and even just, I mean, health insurance plays a big part of that. I think, you know, people get really tied down to those kind of, those sort of positions because of the health insurance. And I think if we got to a point where, you know, we had, uh, you know, a more inclusive health system that, you know, people didn't have to worry about health insurance, um, my, I suspect that there would be more entrepreneurial entrepreneurs and more innovation going on, where people would be more willing to take a chance to try something new or start a new industry, or you know, you know, or even just more mom and pop businesses, you know, and fewer mega chains. Yeah, just doing and, things
0: you're passionate about, right? Yep. Taking a chance. So,
1: and even if we talk about say just restaurants, you know, I would rather have a, like a wide variety of mom and pop type restaurants than whole bunch of the exact same chain in every town yeah and and so i you know in my again i you know i can't you know i wouldn't trust my opinion on what's how to fix society but i would my suspicion is that if that health care component was uh or that fear of losing their health insurance at their corporate job wasn't there that there would be more people taking risks to try new things and you know and Everyone in society would probably benefit because there would be more variety and diversity and just kind of opportunities of other interesting businesses or, you know, or just whole brand new things we can't think of because no one's invented them yet because they're, you know, or they're afraid to lose their health coverage and
0: don't want to pursue that, that idea they had. That's a big factor that hangs over a lot of people's heads, right? Mm -hmm. It's just because if you get hurt and it's something, especially if it's something out of your control or you get sick or yep, just just any random thing. I mean, that can be it for so many people. I mean, if you get diagnosed with cancer and you don't have health insurance, yep, that's a spot that, that it's going to be really hard to get out from yeah, under. No, yeah, you know? that's the
1: thing. I mean, yeah, that's... Yeah, I mean, the... Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, you anything, you need a kidney transplant or you get a car accident or you, you need that chemotherapy, like these things that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, that... You can't yeah. or you even, just can't afford without or it, or even like a you know, you know, who knows, you know, organ transplant could be millions of dollars. And
0: yeah, some of these drugs that you need just to make it a few more months, yep. that are just astronomical in price. I mean, um, those those epipens and mm-hmm. things like insulin, things that you you have to have just just monthly just to make it through. That they just charge the shit out of just to just to get you you know it would be interesting to see what would happen if people had more if people were more empowered to take a risk where that would lead in their lives i wonder if that would make people more happy overall Mm -hmm. you know what i mean because you can't imagine that i think for some people working a corporate job does make them happy but i think for a lot of people that's like it's just the more fiscally responsible option to go down that path you know Mm -hmm. especially if they're like breaking it into categories of yeah i really have this dream of i want to go and start this business and try this thing and see where it goes or even just artistic pursuits you know Mm -hmm. it's hard to do you gotta have money you gotta make it through
1: yep oh yeah yeah and that's i mean that's true i mean it's and it's good even even if you are you don't worry about the health care just the financial aspect you know that's a big risk start going out on your own yeah
0: starting your own business i mean especially if you were trying to do something now i don't even know what that would look like mm -hmm. the middle of covid just trying to break your way into the scene Yep, it's a crazy world man Mm -hmm. luckily we have some great alcohol though to help us get through yeah i'm excited to see i'm excited for that brandy to come out i definitely I I'm excited to see what you got cooking, man. Yep. I think that'll be cool. Yeah, no, me Hopefully too. Hopefully this spreads the word a mm-hmm. little bit. Some people go out and buy some bottles. Uh, do you want to plug your, your business, plug everything before um, we wrap up here? Well, I guess yeah, if anyone
1: is interested in learning more about us or our products, our website humbledistillery.com is always a good spot to start, you know. Our social media, you know, we've got Facebook and Instagram, you know. We've got some interesting cocktails, images and photos and recipes
0: yeah i can definitely vouch for the pictures if nothing yeah. else it's cool just to follow to see that mm-hmm. all right well thanks abe i i no had a blast talking with you man yeah, that likewise. was really cool
1: appreciate you having me
0: yeah absolutely and thank you for the bottle i'm gonna put that here and yep we'll dish it out when guests yeah, come on tr- and see if we yeah, can't try get with
1: that uh, what do you say, raspberry hibiscus
0: yeah Or's i'm gonna have to i think i have some of those flowers back at my house i'm gonna have to mix something up all right see how it goes all, all right, right thanks appreciate man it. yep thank you thanks guys